You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So in Lewis Carroll's follow-up to Alice in Wonderland, Alice Through the Looking Glass, the story begins with the discovery of another world that exists through the mirror. And as Alice steps through that mirror, what she finds out about this world is it's very different than the world that she's used to. Things are not sought by moving in the direction of these things. The way forward is not toward it. To get somewhere important, you've got to move in what seems like the opposite direction. Up is down. Forward is backward. And in a sense, Hebrews is inviting us believers through the looking glass to envision a different world, one that is described here in verse 5 as, quote, the world to come, a world that is quite different than the world as we know it. And that world to come is just another way of describing the kingdom of God. The kingdom that has been inaugurated through Jesus, through his crucifixion, burial, uh, through his resurrection and ascending to the right hand of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has come. It's in our midst. And yet, it's not here yet. It's not fully realized. In fact, verse 8 says, at present, we do not yet see everything. We don't see everything as it ought to be. So God has ordered the world in a way that is not yet fully realized. And our vision has become skewed through unbelief. It's become skewed through sin. It's been skewed through death. And so in order to envision this world to come, we have to begin to look at our lives and look at our world around us and look at our relationships and look at every dynamic of life through the lens of faith in Christ. We have to look through the lens of hope that's found in the resurrection. And this is going to involve some things that initially seem sort of otherworldly. It means acknowledging that the way to be exalted is by being brought low. That the path to glory takes us through suffering. That the way to usher in life comes through death. That authority and control are to be exercised through sacrifice and grace, that the way to rise in the kingdom is to go low in humility, and that what right now is seen invisible will not last, 
and what is not yet seen will last forever. This passage that we're looking at today helps us to see what we're not naturally going to see about Jesus and his kingdom and his reign and our future. And specifically, it is leading us to see what we are not naturally going to see about humanity's role in this world to come, what it means to be human. Now, the author took us on this little aside of warning us about drifting from the word that we've heard in Jesus Christ. And now the author of Hebrews is back on this topic that almost takes us by surprise, that Jesus is better than angels. We're back on that topic again. Jesus is better than angels. Why does that matter? So here's a little brief overview of what I would consider a very complicated passage, if I could be honest. A brief overview and then we'll get into it. Humanity has fallen from its intended place. And no one, including angels, can elevate us and restore us back to that place but Jesus, the true Son of Man. Humanity can only reach their destiny through belonging to Christ. So look with me again in verse five. For it was not to who? Angels, there it is. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So as we're reading along here, our assumption, at least mine was, is that it's then going to say that God didn't give the world to come over to angels, but he has given it to Jesus. That seems right, because we're told in chapter one that Jesus is the heir of all things. And that is not wrong, but it's not what's being said here. Quoting directly from Psalm chapter 8, the author tells us this. It has been testified elsewhere, quote, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So God puts everything under whose feet? Humanities. Wow. So what we're being given here is a biblical vision of humanity. What it means for us as people, individually and collectively, to be aligned with God's purposes for humanity. What it means to be truly alive, which is wildly important. As one early church author put it, the glory of God is man fully alive. The goal of salvation, the goal of everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ is not to make you any less human. And the goal of salvation is not to make you anything more than human. The goal of salvation, the work of Jesus Christ is to restore you and to restore me to our humanity, to be fully human again. God wants you to be nothing other than human. Like, take, take a deep breath this morning. In all of your striving, in all of your trying to become something, in all of your trying to excel, in all of your trying to push against your limits, God wants you to be nothing other than human. To be nothing other than you. That's who he's made us to be. 
by God's grace, that is who he will restore us to become. You know, it's never been more important for us to grasp what it means to be human, especially with so many things today that seek to undermine our humanity, that seek to replicate our humanity, that seek to blur our humanity and confuse our humanity and even strip us of our humanity. You know, I find it really interesting that we are the only species on earth that doesn't know how to be us. There's no conventions or conferences for dogs trying to figure out what it means to be a dog. Despite what Ratatouille taught you, there are no rats confused about what it means to be a rat in this world. It is just us, confused, fallen from our intended place, and desperately needing rescue from our creator. But as we'll see, it is only us that also holds the most special place in God's creation, the apple of his eye. So if you're taking notes, here we're, here's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin with the first theme of humanity's dignity. Humanity's dignity. Quick Google search. The topic of human dignity is going to bring up all kinds of results. It's going to bring up humanitarian works. It's going to bring up civil rights agencies, government initiatives, community-based organizations, nonprofits, bipartisan work here, human dignity. Dignity is a value that I would argue is a pretty wild, uh, widely held value up among most people, particularly in the West. And, and for that reason, it is something that I think that we take for granted. We just assume that human dignity is self-evident, that it's a natural value that all of humanity shares. Duh, human dignity. But it's not. Where do we get this value that humans have dignity? It's not from human history. If you do your history, if you do good history, you're going to find that human dignity has been not a value shared by humanity, but you'll see a very brutal human history. It doesn't originate from the sciences. It doesn't originate from natural selection, which is far more brutal than I think we'd like to believe, and I don't think we really want to apply the implications of natural selection, really. So where does it come from? And I would argue it comes distinctly from the Judeo-Christian influence in our world today. The way that we think about human dignity, the rights of individuals, care for people, comes, whether we recognize it or not, from passages like Psalm 8. Passages that we find in our scriptures. Why? Why do people have dignity? We're told in the Bible because we are special to God. Because we're special to God. Why are we worth Worthy of dignity, it is not based on what we have achieved. It's not based on our socioeconomic status. It's not based on our gender or our race or our religion or our cognitive ability. It's not based on our size. It's not based even on our stage of development. Dignity is based on God's design. We are worthy of dignity because God has distinctly placed that in us. So if you're taking notes, I want uh, to give you a couple sub-points under human dignity. And what we find here is that we as people are described first as those who are cared for. 
quoting directly from Psalm 8, it says, When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And what is the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is asking a really good question that we have to ask. How can God, who is so majestic and wonderful, pay such close and careful attention to little us? Why would God care? I know that we think that we're the center of the universe, but when we scan out just a little bit, we realize we are so small. So small. And so with all of the big and the breathtaking things that God does, like keeping galaxies in motion, and as we saw yesterday, aligning things like the moon and the sun perfectly, God's doing all of that in all of creation every day. Why would God be so mindful of our lives? Why would God care about us? Especially in light of how little we've cared about him. I love this line from Winnie the Pooh, who said, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. And that's humanity, with a very special place in God's heart. It's not because we are a big deal in and of ourselves. It's not because we do such wonderful things for God. It is not, I hate to break your heart, because you are so lovable. But it's because God is so infinitely loving. Secondly, we see here that humanity is created. Do not take this for granted. Verse, uh, well, Psalm 8 and Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, you what? Made him. You made him. We are not the result of a random collision over these long periods of time. We are not simply biological matter that has been fused together. We are carefully made by God. We are the objects of God's love and his creativity. The psalmist would say elsewhere in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Listen to me. You are not an accident. You are not a regret. You are not a liability to God. You're not a liability to humanity. You're not a burden to God. You are not what you make yourself. You're not what you feel you ought to be. You are not what people say you are. And you're not what people are trying to make you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And unlike anything else, including angels, we alone are created in the image of God in order to reflect him uniquely. The third thing we see here is that humanity is crowned. Verse seven through eight, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is making a very shocking claim about humanity, something so wild that only the Bible could say something like this. It's telling us that humans are made not just to reflect 
the character of God, but we are made to rule and reign over the world on behalf of God. The technical term for this is vice regent, which means someone who represents a ruler, someone who represents the authority of someone else, someone who rules and reigns not with their own authority, but with borrowed authority from the rightful king. Who is that in all of creation? Well, it's intended to be humanity. It was supposed to be us. This is the very vision that we have from the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 1. And God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have what? Dominion. Authority. Rule. Reign. Humanity was crowned. We were intended to rule the world which included, and here's our angels again, which included ruling and reigning over angels. Hebrews 1 says that these are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who inherit salvation. Angels serve humanity, not humanity serving angels. Even angels are our servants. But as Hebrews shows us, something has gone wrong. Something has happened that has brought us down from where we were intended to be. We've been made now, quote, lower than the angels. Which leads us, secondly, to humanity's descent. Verse 8, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to humanity. So look around. You can do it right here, right now, but what I mean is more like meta. Look around at the world that we live in. We're not ruling and reigning. I mean, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your creed or your religion or what faith you were raised in. I think we can all agree we're not doing well at this whole human thing. We talk about kids growing up and adulting, but where's the class on humaning? We're failing. And let's be honest, we're not getting better. We're not getting better. We make countless advancements every year. Advancements in technology, advancements in health and medicine, advancements in learning, and yet here we are with just better tools to hurt each other. We're living longer lives that are just as lonely and miserable as before. We're more creative at destroying people's reputations. We're more precise in our airstrikes. We're faster and more sneaky in stealing people's identity. We live with constant headaches from staring at screens that promised us that we'd be more connected and yet we're not even able to look someone in the eye. When we see a face on a screen, we're not even sure anymore that it's a real one. We live in an era called body positivity, and yet more and more people are seeking to irreversibly alter the bodies and their anatomies that they were born with. According to Forbes, 77% of people go to work every single day with the fear that, quote, they will lose their jobs and be replaced by AI in the next 12 months. Think about that. 77% of people go to work every day with that deep down fear that one day, soon, these human hands and this human mind will simply not be enough. It will be obsolete. It will be 
replaced. We have more access to life-sustaining resources like clean water, food, and shelter, and yet people are ending their lives at alarming rates. Therapy is culturally accepted and accessible, and most healthcare providers now provide it for people, and yet we are arguably more anxious and depressed than we've ever been. We're not ruling. We're not reigning. We're floundering. We do not know who we are. And we're falling further and further and further away from what it means to be truly human. So what's gone wrong? Well, the Bible would show us the simple answer, not the easy, but the simple answer is it's sin leading to death. It's devastated the whole thing. Because of it, instead of ruling and reigning over creation, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and attempted to usurp his authority. And this is what we do every time we sin as well. We are seeking to dethrone God. We are seeking to establish ourselves as authority. Yes, we were vice regents. Yes, we were supposed to rule over the world, but never rule over God. And yet we claim to know what's better than God. We claim to have a better direction for our lives than God has for us. Essentially what we do is we seek to define our humanity apart from our designer. And it always goes bad. And the sad irony is that the more we resist God's design, the more we resist God's authority in our lives, the further and further and further we slip away from our intended place of ruling and reigning over creation. All of our demands for control actually bring us further from it. And like any other species in the world living outside of their intended environment, we are struggling. We're skittish. We bare our teeth. We lash out. So the question is, how can we be restored to the glory that God intended for us? How can we be rescued from this devastating downward spiral of confusion and fear and selfishness and manipulation and abuses of authority and loneliness and ultimately death? How can we be restored? How can we be lifted up again? Hebrews shows us that we needed someone truly human to represent us. I want to borrow some language from pop culture here. We needed someone to volunteer as tribute, to represent our whole district, to represent the whole of humanity, which leads us thirdly to humanity's deliverer. Look with me again in verse 9. But, and that is always a turning point in scripture, it's hopeless, it's broken, it's lost. But, we see him who for a little while was, less, uh, was made lower than the angels, namely who? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It's interesting, this is the first time, and I know this is almost going to come as a shock, it's the first time our author has used the name Jesus. How long have we been in this series? Like two months? We've been talking about Jesus every day. First time the author uses the name Jesus. Previously, he's referred to him as the Son of God and the Lord. 
But here he uses his name given at birth, Jesus. Why? I think the author is showing us his humanity. And while Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God himself, eternal, it's this Jesus who has assumed our human nature. He became truly human with all that comes with being human, including pain and suffering and even death, with one exception. Jesus was just like us in every regard with one exception. He's without sin. There's a story from history I love. It's probably myth. But it's a story about Alexander the Great. One day he was holding court and a young man was taken before him and this young man was accused of being a coward in the battlefield. And Alexander asks him, young man, what is your name? And he responds, Alexander, sir. And he says, no, I asked you for your name. And fearful, he says, my name is also Alexander, sir. And the king approached him and said sternly in his face, quote, change your life or change your name. In other words, you better figure out how to deserve a name like mine because no failure like you can share a name like mine. And let's be honest, I think a lot of us approach faith in Jesus just like this. Our meaning, our worth, our sense of belonging, our sense of being worthy to be identified with Jesus, being able to live with God in heaven forever and being allowed to rule and reign with him in eternity, it is all based on how well we represent Jesus, on how well we bear his name. But the gospel tells us the very opposite. The gospel tells us that it is all based on how well he has represented us. Why did the Son of God assume our humanity? Why did, according to John 1, the word take on flesh and dwell among us? And the answer is he was doing this to be our representative, to be truly human in all the ways that our sin had impaired us from being to take up the role that we have all failed to fulfill, to pass through death, the penalty of our sin, fully and completely in a way that emptied death of its power over us, to rise again as a pioneer of a new humanity on our behalf, in our place, for us. Jesus walked through life perfectly. Jesus passed through death sacrificially. Jesus rose from the grave triumphantly. And Jesus ascended to the throne majestically. Jesus took on the worst of our human experience in order to give us the best of his human experience. This is at the heart of a word that we find in our final verse, grace. Undeserved favor, unearned privilege from God. A few weeks ago, we were at a family barbecue No family barbecue is complete without a little cornhole. We're playing cornhole, and and I get paired up with my youngest son. I don't even know if he'll remember this. And we're paired up, and he's across the way, and across the yard, he says, don't worry, Dad, I'll carry us. (laughs) Don't worry, Dad, I'll carry us, which means I'm going to make sure we both win. And I get the chills even with this application. 
Because when Jesus died, rose, and ascended to the right hand of God, it was his triumphant message to humanity, I'm gonna carry the team. Where I go, you're gonna go. When I defeat death, you're gonna defeat death. When I'm crowned in glory, I'll raise you up with me. As I rule and reign in heaven at the right hand of the Father, I will make sure that you will rule and reign with me in eternity. I will live as the true human so that you, once again, can be truly human. This is why Jesus' ascension is so powerful. It means that we have our own flesh. It means we have our own kind. If I may, we have our own species in heaven, at the right hand of God, who is going to make sure as a sure pledge that he's gonna take us, his people, up with him as well. John Stott once famously said, whether we are spiritually alive or dead depends on which humanity we belong to. Whether we still belong to the old humanity or the new humanity initiated in Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you a very pressing question today. Who, not what, who is defining your life? Who has you? And today, who do you belong to? Who is determining your future? Who is determining your destiny? Let me conclude like this. I want you to consider, just a moment of reflection, consider all of the things that we look to, to make us feel alive. We all have them in our lives. All the things that we look to to fulfill us, to give our lives meaning, to secure our future, the things that we look to so that we feel like we're in control again. The thrills that we seek so that we can feel alive again. The purchases that we make so that we can feel important. The people that we associate with or the people that we turn to so that they make our lives matter again. The changes that we make to ourselves to align with who we think that we should be. The sexual experiences that we seek to feel connected. Even the spiritual experiences that we seek so that we can feel connected with ourselves, the world, and the divine. And when we boil it all down, what makes us all the same is this. We're all just desperately trying to recapture our humanity. We're all longing for Eden. We're all trying to get back there. We're desperate to figure out what it means to be alive. And Hebrews shows us explicitly it's only faith in Jesus that can do that. I remember the day I met my oldest son. And everyone says, you know, babies' eyes aren't developed. They can't see you or whatever. I don't buy it. So he's delivered. They place him on Michelle. And defying all science, he turns that neck and he lifts that big old head. I'm getting way too sentimental in my old age, guys. Gosh. Well, I may not be able to get through this one. He looks at me in my eyes as if he knew I was looking at him. I've heard it said before that everyone is born looking for a face 
Everyone is born looking for someone who is looking for them. And what the Psalms tell us and what Hebrews tells us is that there is a face. And there are eyes looking for you in your search for him. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is man that you care? With all that God does in creation, why are his eyes on me? Hebrews 9 tells us beautifully, but we see him, namely Jesus. We can't make sense of the world around us. You can't make sense of your life. You can't make sense of your suffering, your temptations, the deep longings of your heart, the things that you wrestle with, the things that confuse you. You can't make sense of any of it apart from seeing Jesus, apart from seeing the eyes that already see you. And what Hebrews tells us is that these eyes, this Jesus reveals to us the, the creator that we've been longing for our whole life. This Jesus reveals the one who cares for you. This Jesus is the one who crowns you and restores you to your humanity and the only one who can truly retrieve and secure the dignity that we were all born with. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who's already looking to you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...